Nutmeg Junction, America's new old-time radio program, proudly presents two Edgar Allan Poe-inspired stories. Deborah Goodman directs Dan Willey and Rob Nachowski in The Cask of Amontillado. Then, a fictionalized comedic tale of Edgar Allan Poe workshopping his classic poem, The Raven. Right here, right now, on Nutmeg Junction. Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, directed by Deborah Goodman, performed by Daniel R. Willey and Rob Brichnavsky. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who so well know the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the Avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my goodwill. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack, but in the matter of old wines he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today. But... I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival. 
I have my doubts, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado. And I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchesi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from a sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi! I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no, it is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is a mere nothing. Amontillado, you have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchesi, he cannot distinguish a sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roclair closely about my person. I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honour of the time. I had told them that I should not return until morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance one and all as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe... It is Father I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Niter? Niter. How long do you have that call? My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is enough. Come, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy as I once was. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Uh, besides, there is Lucchesi. Yeah, uh, the coffee is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of a cough. 
True. True. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A draft of this dock will defend us from the darks. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mold. Drink! He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink to the buried that repose around us. And I to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults are extensive. The Montresors were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heels. And the model? Nimome impine lassiset. Good. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Madoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre! See, it increases! It hangs like moss upon the vaults. The upper his bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. <clears throat> it is nothing. Let us go on. Oh, but first, another draft of the Modak. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. <laughs> I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend? Not I. Oh, then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, 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 yes. You. Impossibly. A mason. A mason. A sign. A sign. It is this. I produced a trowel from beneath the folds of my roclair. <laughs> you jest. He recoiled a few paces. But uh, let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so. I replaced the tool beneath the cloak and again offered him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side, 
the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess, in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no special use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination, the feeble light, did not enable us to see. Oh, proceed! Here it is, the Amontillado. It's for Lucchese. He is an ignoramus. My friend stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant, he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nighter. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado? My friend was not yet recovered from his astonishment. True. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in a great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth. And then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bone. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon level with my breast. I again paused, and holding the flambeau over the mason work, through a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chain form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, 
I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall and replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight. My task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. Now there came from out of the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. A very good joke indeed! An excellent suggestion! We shall have a many rich laugh about it at the Palazzo! <laughs> Over our wine! <laughs> The Amontillado! <laughs> yes, the Amontillado! But is it not getting late? Will they not be waiting for us at the Palazzo? The Lady Fortunato in the rest? Let us be gone! Yes, let us be gone. words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end to my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. Hi, I'm Jerry Crystal. In this station stop, Edgar Allan Poe is in a creative quandary in No Offense. Last call, Mr. Poe. Mr. Poe, last call. Five minutes, my good man. I think we're on to something. Go ahead, Stuart. Try reading it again. Ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore, 
Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, my name is Albert. It's genius. Pure genius. Uh, I'm talking about my words, not necessarily the, the, the delivery. One more round, Albert. I don't know, Edgar. I think the last line may not entirely fulfill the promise that the rest of the poem provides, and I mean that with the utmost respect and with no offense intended or implied, of course. Of course, George, of course. But I think it's genius. Don't you like it, Albert? Huh? Uh, It's all right, I guess. Uh, I mean, I'm the barkeep, not much of a poetry person, but I can appreciate the work people put into it. So, can I close out your tab? Never! More beverages, if you please. Uh, Albert, after this round, please close out the tab. Edgar, I don't think your poem is ready. Not ready for my magazine, at any rate. And I don't mean to offend in any way. This is just my feelings on the subject. Um, how is my reading? I, I feel I'm trying to bring my best work, but... If I'm a little distracted... You read the words, Stuart. You read the words. You see, my fiancé has been acting a little peculiar to me lately, and I... Stuart, Stuart, this is about me right now. Much as I appreciate the fact that you come here with your own needs and personal situation, so you know what? No offense is meant, surely. Of course. Edgar, uh, you've named the raven after the bartender... But unless your readers happen to be at the same bar, I don't think they're going to fully understand the reference. But I've accrued such a large debt here, George. How else can I pay him to give, the, give him the honor of a prominent place in my creative work? I can name the raven Albert. I'd rather just get paid, if I'm being perfectly honest. Uh, not to be rude, but I do appreciate the honor. Uh, supposing you didn't have the debt, and you didn't have to name the raven Albert, uh, how would the poem sound? Ah, in that case, Stuart, take these pages here. Okay, okay, pick it up right there. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as Virginia. Isn't that your young cousin named Virginia? My wife, yes. Ew! I mean, the less I know about your personal life, the better, Edgar. Uh, No offense. Of course! (sighs) It's like I was telling my intended the other day. Stuart, Stuart, no offense, but this is not about you. Now, George, the magazine needs a jolt of excitement that only a work by Poe can provide. Graham's magazine hasn't been the same since you left, that's true. It's Griswold's work that makes it less than suitable, George. You hired him, and no offense. It's true. Your replacement hasn't achieved the same level of interest that your work provided. And no offense to him, of course. I wouldn't mind offense in his case. He hates me. A lot of people hate you, Edgar. Uh, No offense, of course. Of course! But that could just be his reflection of the uncreative garbage circle that you sit in, George. Ah, no offense. 
no offense, but I do have to get up early for work. So if we're done here... Uh, no offense, Stuart, but if you're an actor, so getting up early for you means sometime after noon. Hey, now. I mean, no offense, Edgar, but I happen to resent the uncreative garbage comment. We were very good to you at the magazine. We were fi- you were a fine editor, an adequate critic. Your own literary work wasn't suitable for decent readers. Uh, no offense, of course. Of course you like Murders in the Room or well enough to publish it. At least it gave the rag, <clears throat> I mean, a magazine, a little artistic flair. No offense. Uh, well, no offense, Edgar, but I've been very patient reading all your rewrites, and Lenore expects me to meet her for lunch. Uh, no offense, but you know what? I've met Lenore, and giving you any time away from her is a favor. <laughs> no offense. No offense, Edgar, but my rag paid your copious bills and kept you out of debt. And now that you're out of my employee, you socialize with actors and whores, which is often the same thing. No offense, Stuart, of course. Uh, no offense, George, but in the future, I wouldn't want to spend five minutes with an ignorant editor who hires Rufus Griswold to replace me, even if I had to spend an entire evening with an insipid actor crying about his fiancée, Lenore. Uh, no offense, Stuart. Well, I've had about enough of your stupid, whiny, derivative dribblings you call poems. Your vapid, trite, and nearly incoherent babblings are poor excuses for verses. Dickens already wrote about a talking raven, you morally, ethically, creatively, and literally bankrupt washout. I'm just sorry I ever clapped my eyes on your useless, pathetic, scribble diarrhea, let alone read them aloud, fouling the air with a stench of mendacity and meaningless spittle. The tissue for the toilet holds more literary merit than the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'll never work with you again. Never more. Never more. Never more! No offense, of course. Yes, of course. So, about this tab, uh, who's paying? So... Are we going Dutch? You invited us here. Stuart, how would you like a poem dedicated to your lovely Lenore? In exchange for paying the tab? Exactly. Only if you never call me again to perform your poems, Edgar. No offense. Nevermore.